Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Before we start the Christmas edition of The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, a word for our friends at Wisdom Towers at the Oval. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Jeff, um, we, we, we told you all about it last week and the amazing offer we've got on show at the moment with them. Six editions of the magazine for just six quid or ten dollars, uh, depending on where you're listening to this podcast. I'm not sure how many rupees that is for our listeners in India, but I'm, I'm sure you can convert it. It's about... Eight US dollars, would I have that right, Jeff? Maybe seven US dollars. So either way, it's a steal. Six editions of the magazine. And the reason we're telling you about it at the front of this Christmas episode is that if you've forgotten to buy someone a gift, what better stocking filler could there be uh, than a magazine subscription, which will run them all the way through till the middle of 2020? That's right. And if you're worried that a digital subscription won't physically fill a stocking, you can also, once you've got it, go to the website um, and get a certificate printed out that will let the lucky recipient know that they are receiving this subscription. Half a dozen issues, so six months worth for about 10 bucks, which is pretty ridiculous. Um, and, and we've even got a slightly easier to remember URL this time around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So last week we gave you the Pocket Mags website and a couple of people said to us that that was a bit difficult to remember. So we've shortened it to the Bitly. I think most people who are listening to a podcast would be familiar with Bitly. So bit.ly, so bit.ly forward slash WCM final, bit.ly forward slash WCM final. You don't need a code to unlock the offer. That website serves as the code, proves uh, your merit as a final word listener, and you can pick up six editions. That is the code. The code <laughs> is yours. The code you have to live by, like Dexter in Dexter or Omar mm. in The Wire. We all need a code to live by. There's a magazine coming out on the 28th of December, Jeff, a brand new edition of the magazine. So if you're listening to this on the 24th, 25th, 26th of December, as we expect you probably will be, being the Christmas episode you can pick up the offer now and have mm-hmm. a fresh mag in your hand digitally at least uh, in the space of a couple of days uh, the 28th of december that being the end of season edition uh, of course that means picking the the wisdom teams of the year which we've been involved in so the men's test one day international t20 uh, the women's teams of the year as well uh, the test side's been picked across a panel of 31 broadcasters and writers across the world. There's a Joe Denley interview. There's my column up the front of the magazine on David Warner. Andrew Miller's got a new column. There's an interview with Viv Richards and Monty Panesar. It's all there as always, Jeff. It's a, it's a real smorgasbord of fantastic cricket writing. Viv and Monty together at last. Uh, that URL is bitly.com slash WCM final. We'll probably put it in the show notes anyway. We're nice like that. <laughs> That's it. Grab yourself a subscription. Let's do the show. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did. This is the final word. Crisp 
Christmas edition. Feliz Navidad, happy holidays, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever you feel like celebrating at this time of year. Uh, it's Jeff Lemon here. Adam Collins is with Hello. me, uh, not physically, but in spirit. I'm in Melbourne, where it is currently nearing midnight and 35 degrees. Um, you're in London, where it's probably not either of those things. I'm in London wearing a skivvy, uh, which is something that I, I thought <laughs> I'd invest in. This is the first winter I've spent from sort of start to end in the UK. Like I, I've spent winters in the UK and in the Northern Hemisphere before, but I've always kind of had it punctuated with visits uh, and whatever else. But this being my mm. first actual London Christmas, I, I thought that buying a couple of skivvies was in order and I'm, and I'm wearing one as we talk. It's been sheeting rain. It's been disgusting outside. Um, so in stark contrast to Australia where it's burning to a crisp worse than normal. So I suppose that's um, the first thing to note that yeah, there are a lot of people who've been affected by the the, the tragic weather conditions uh, and, and circumstances around Australia in, in the last couple of weeks. And our thoughts uh, very much are with those who are in this difficult position and, and hopefully um, the conversation around uh, this can can mature and we can find a way as a country to make a better contribution to mitigating the, the effects that are making this so terrible. And something which in our very small niche uh, in the world will greatly affect cricket into the future as well. Sure will. Track back down the feed a bit and have a look at our climate change episode if you haven't caught that one with Tanya Aldred. Uh, Today, we are talking to Mel Jones. So last year at Christmas, we did a big interview feature with Harsha Bogle. He was a wonderful person to talk to. We just had a long conversation. We didn't do much else on the episode and we thought, let's do that again with someone who we really want to talk to, someone who's a great storyteller, someone who's got a lot to say um, that's worth listening to. Uh, So Melanie Jones, former Australian cricketer and and current um, Cricket Australia board member as of very recently um, and probably, uh, I'd say, the most down-to-earth among that bunch if you were to sit down for a chat. Yeah, the reason I laughed when you started talking was I was absolutely certain, Jeff, given what we've just been talking about before we went to air, that your first... uh, reflection this morning uh, before we break into a chat with Mel Jones was going to be about Glenn Maxwell. <laughs> what a couple of days uh, he's had. <laughs> we might just pivot there for a sec. So um, we, we didn't plan for this to be a timely interview. We're, we're releasing it on the 24th of December. We're recording it a few days before that because I'm about to go away uh, for the weekend and, and so forth. So this is very much pre-recorded. But um, we, we did uh, watch Maxwell just dominate the Brisbane Heat uh, in a BBL game on the Gold Coast, mate, 83 in 39 balls. Yesterday, he went for 2.2 million in the IPL auction. Maxie's back, baby. Maxie's back. Maxwell's back. Skivvies are back. <laughs> skivvies are back. Do you want to know a fact about it's Skivvies all... are back? Skivvies are back did better. Yeah. Uh, the, the mock-up, the late show mock-up of Skivvies are back. Yeah. We learnt this through the, the 93 um, adventure last year. Charted better yeah. than the original. It, it, it finished in, in the top 40 ARIA charts in 1993. Skivvies are back. Couldn't make it up. Well, as it should. <laughs> um, I've got a brown one is the only line that I remember. Um, Sorry, Glenn Maxwell. Back, so, to, back, to, the, back to the important yeah. pressing matter of Glenn Maxwell's innings. Well, it was, it was beautiful stuff tonight. It was, uh, it, it was the full Maxwell cavalcade, the, um, uh, you know, the, the pull shots from behind his left ear somewhere, the, um, <laughs> the big hits, uh, the, sort of the big swish off the pads over deep mid-wicket, and particularly uh, towards the end when he started batting bareheaded under the lights, mm. just got rid of the, the lid got rid of the cap, said, no, no, it's pretty warm up here in Brisbane facing spin. I'll just um, let the locks breathe and and pogo a few more over the fence. Five sixes, I think, in the innings. And um, 
oh, it's, it's, good. it's great to watch him back back doing what he does. Yeah, it was a bit Donny-esque, wasn't it, when you talk about the, the bare head, I suppose, the, the most recent prominent exponent of that has been MSD and uh, and the way that Maxwell was um, utilising the full 360 degrees of the field um, was uh, did have some similarities there, as he tends to do at the peak of his powers. And from a selfish perspective, I suppose, what I loved was seeing people in our Twitter feeds posting their Maxwell for Australia final word T-shirts as to show solidarity yes. with Glenn uh, and solidarity with the show and all the rest of it, which was a nice touch. Um, of course, you can grab the, the Maxwell for Australia shirt and badge combination from League Tees. Dot com dot au. Anthony Costa um, made that for us earlier this year. But um, yeah, Glenn, I mean, after having gone through a, a tough stretch, having spent some time away from the game, there was a lovely anecdote uh, in an interview that uh, Louis Cameron uh, had on cricket.com.au last week where one of his teammates at Fitz- mm. Fitzroy Doncaster, it might have been a skipper at Fitzroy Doncaster, reflected on Glenn walking in after batting in a grade game a, a couple of weeks ago, walking into the sheds after making 50-odd and going, I love cricket again. Like it, it just was that moment where he goes, "I love, I love it again. I'm back." And um, and yeah, it, it's wonderful for for those of us that you know followed his career pretty closely that he's loving the game. He's got a big smile on his face, and and he's you know been dropped from the one day side this week. We we shouldn't sort of brush over um, for the third time in the last few years. He's been um, left out of the Australian one day team. It's probably the first actual tour he's missed in quite a while. Mm. I think the previous times he's been left out has been in in Australia, but. By the by, I think that we probably expected that to happen after the World Cup. In Sri Lanka in 2016, he was in the oh, that's right, the T20s, T20s but not, not the one day. Yeah, that's right. So he got dropped in um, the West Indies so he was on the year and then, and then didn't get taken to, to Sri Lanka until the T20s. But the broader point that, you know, he has been a almost permanent fixture of the 50-over team since his debut in 2012. But um, now, yeah, misses out and, and gets the chance, I suppose, on the plus side, Jeff, of playing... Um, T20 mm. for the Melbourne Stars and, and, you know, more than likely dominating over the next two months. Before we get to Mel Jones, let's have a quick dash of Nerd Pledge. Yes. The game of nerds, the game of pledges, uh, where people get on our patron page, which is where they can throw a few bucks in the tin to support the show. And instead of sending us a normal amount of money, they send us an amount that corresponds to a cricketing number. We'll do three of these today. We've been just getting through a, a couple in each episode. but So if we haven't got to yours yet, we will. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're on the list. We're just working our way down. Uh, today is going to be the day that I'm going to send it back to you. By now, you should have somehow. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> today, we're going to start with uh, Xavier Voigt Hill. Ah. Um, not a suburb, a person. Do you know Xavier? I, I, I love his work on Twitter. Um, he's now working okay. in the broader cricket family. So um, I'm, I'm thrilled that he is, uh, is part of the, the, the final word family as well by virtue of this pledge. What, what's, he, what's he got for us? He has put in uh, $2.61. Does two sixty one mean anything to you in a cricketing context? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, my usual default is what's the cap number? John Benno wore, wore, uh, was mm. the 261st Australian man to, was it? to play for Australia. Of course, went on to be solid a, a selector uh, later on in his cricketing life and a writer and journalist, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, eventually became Richie Benno's brother after a lot of hard work <laughs> and uh, was, was appointed to the role. Um, look, it, I'm not sure whether this will tally or not with Xavier, although maybe it will. I know he's a fan of the global game, so I'm not looking for a, a strictly partisan pledge. Mm-hmm. And that's the amount of runs that BJ Watling put on with Mitchell Sutner at Matt Monganui last month. So when New Zealand uh, flogged yeah. England for 615 runs, which was the highest total they've ever made against England, uh, uh, 
Mm. It was a fifth, uh, sorry, it was a seventh wicket stand of, of 261, which made it possible. So that's the the highest uh, score ever made. Sorry, it was for the seventh wicket, not not the fifth wicket. So yep. um, that's the highest ever um, for New Zealand against England. Uh, New Zealand full stop uh, and the fifth highest um, overall for any test match for that wicket when a, when, a t- when a team was six down. So that's not a bad number. That's a great suggestion, but I, I reckon that Xavier's number came in before yeah. that match because we're, we're, we're backlogged a mm-hmm. bit on the nerd pledges. I reckon he would have come in more than four weeks ago. Okay. So um, my, my suggestion, my suspicion is that is that if, if he's a fan of the broader game, the global game, it, this dates back to a very important series, 1950. Frank Worrell at Trent Bridge made 261 oh, against England well. to put the West Indies up 2-1 in that series. They went on to win uh, the fourth test as well. They won the series 3-1. It was a, a watershed moment for English cricket. And that was the series where Ramadan and Valentine went absolutely nuts, um, bowled about a million overs between them, took all the wickets. And there were four West Indies players named among the Wisdom Players of the Year <laughs> in that summer. Uh, Ramadin, Valentine, Worrell and Everton Weeks were four of the five um, Wisdom Players of the Year for their extraordinary series against England when they won 3-1. Yeah, given we were talking about one of the other three Ws in Weeks uh, last week uh, in reference to how many tonnes Marnus Labuschagne had made in a row, I think it's only right that, that Frank Worrell um, gets a gets a Guernsey uh, for his two sixty one. That's that's a great little uh, great little get, Jeff. Nicely picked up. The next one, thank you, Xavier. Uh, the next one comes in from Paul Coffey. He has sent in two fifty two. Now two fifty two, I know, is one of those numbers that no one has made in any format of cricket professionally as yet, or, or internationally at least. Probably not in first class. But it's not the lowest because that's 229, so it's maybe not that, 252, any ideas? Yeah, well, I, th- I had a look before at one thing because I knew that 252 was Brian Statham's wicket tally. So, Oh, yes, which we had a few weeks ago. Someone, um, Oliver Cawley had 252 for Brian Statham, right. which we eventually got right after <laughs> getting it wrong a few times. <laughs> so I-, I like the idea of it being Statham again for all the reasons we said a few weeks ago, and I like the idea of revisiting it, but as you say, Jeff, it's it's probably uh, it feels like we should add to it rather than just simply reflexively going back to something we know as great a bowler as, as Statham was, of course, recognised with one of the ends named after him at Old Trafford and Brian Statham way, isn't it? The road when you when you're driving into Old Trafford, but um, let's try and add to it. The only other thing that I could come up with um, was a, a slightly lesser bowler than. Statham, um, but Keegan Meth, the bowler for Zimbabwe, who famously was hit in the face by um, a shot off his own bowling from the Bangladeshi batsman Nasir Hussain. I don't know if you remember this, about 10 years ago, I reckon. He, he had got a straight drive straight back at him, hit him in the mouth, knocked several of his teeth out, broke his jaw. It was horrific stuff. Mm. Like the, I, I am not good at what – like I don't watch replays of players getting injured in – in sport because I just can't handle it. But I sort of inadvertently watched this and saw it in ultra slow motion and it is absolutely horrendous. Um, but it was also somewhat unfortunate given his name that there were a lot of headlines that were, that said things like severe mouth injury, colon meth, um, which seemed, you know, yeah. opposite, but um, weren't actually accurate at the time. So he took two for 52 against New Zealand in Harare. Um, he didn't, have the luckiest sporting career so I like the idea of Keegan Meth getting a run in 
Nerd Pledge, even if it's probably not him. <laughs> but you can let us know, Paul. If we've got, if we've got you wrong, um, you can always tweet us or email us and um, let us know what's up. Thank you, Paul. Doing the best we can. Our last Nerd Pledge today comes from Megan Maurice, our colleague and friend on the internet. Thank you, Megan, <laughs> uh, who has sent through a number of 207. Now, Adam, I was guessing overwhelmingly likely Megan's a massive fan of women's cricket, so I was guessing this would be a women's cricket number. I've been digging through my notes. I couldn't really find anything that stood out. Mm. In 207 was India's biggest winning margin. Um, in 2008, they had that margin against Pakistan um, until they broke that in 2017 against Ireland. Uh, 207 was also the number of girls that Cricket Victoria got to attend a uh, leadership forum at the Junction Oval and Mildura uh, earlier this year. So that's a, a good use of 207. But I, I doubt either of those are the candidate. Well, look. You look like you've got an yeah, idea. Yeah, sometimes the number jumps out at you. As soon as I saw 207, it did uh, it did ring a bell with women's cricket. I uh, had the good fortune of being asked to write the essay uh, when Tammy Beaumont became one of the wisdom cricketers of the year for the Almanac this year. And 207 runs was the number that Tammy had made across her first 16 one-day internationals, which is always used as a benchmark given how slow her career was to start. And then she went bananas after that. So um, from that, uh, from modest beginnings, the, the next four years, she's made 700, averaged 50. Uh, hard to dispute the fact that she's been the inform opener in the world in 50 over cricket, including player of the tournament at the 2017 World Cup. So I guess an exercise in contrast, we know what Beaumont is now, but 207 reflects the, 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 the sketch she, uh, first half of her career, um, which uh, where, before she, you know, uh, was able to establish herself. So I, I reckon that's the the best hook in terms of uh, a contemporary woman's star. I am prepared to give you a tick for that one. Whether Megan does, we will wait and see. Uh, she can let us know. <laughs> Thanks to Megan. Thanks to everyone who has played Nerd Pledge. If you want to play, you need to go to the Patron website, p a t r e o n patron dot com slash the final word, or you can also go to our website, finalwordcricket.com and find your way there. Uh, get involved in Nerd Pledge. Send us a number. Send us a poser and we'll see if we can work it out. Yeah, we'll have more to say about our patrons in our New Year's show next week, I think, because I think from memory it might have been our first January show of 2019 where we started this malarkey and it, yeah, it did uh, it did mm. certainly uh, engage a lot of people on trying to stump us and it's been an awful lot of fun. So if you want to be part of that fun, uh, jump on the Patreon page. Um, we're very grateful uh, and humbled by the amount of people that have done so uh, over the last 11 and a half months. And a particularly Merry Christmas to all of those patron supporters who've helped <laughs> us get through the year um, and, and supported us practically as well as listening into the show. Very much appreciated. We shall be back for our interview with Mel Jones after this break. Hi, I'm Natalie Jemanis and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Pons. Jeff, do you know what I've worked out over the years are rubbish? Participation trophies. When you reach presentation night and, and you get given a trophy as a member of the ranks, but you're not the best and fairest, you're not the bowling average or the batting average or the most consistent or the most improved or the clubman or whatever it is, you are simply a participant. And it's a trophy that mm. isn't valued. It is a trophy that fundamentally gathers dust if it gets put up at all before getting put in a box and stored away and taken from household to household before eventually ending up in landfill. It's not a valued prized possession. But we have an alternative, futuretalent.com.au, Jeff. We have the alternative to your participation trophy 
conundrum this year. Instead of going out and getting tons and tons of these bad boys made, why not instead get a footy card made? Why not instead get a sports card made that reflects the achievements of your players and the, the team they've been part of through the season? That is what uh, future talent can do for you. They can put you on a card. They can put your friends on a card. They can put your enemies on a card. You could run their stats on the back about um, what exactly why they're a shit bloke. You'd recall back in the Iraq war, there were the, there was the deck of cards, wasn't it? With uh, mm. who, who uh, with uh, Uday and Kuse, whether they were the, the ace of hearts and the yeah. ace of spades or whatever it is. And um, if we were to have another incursion in Iraq in a similar circumstance, future talent could supply the US military with what they need to note who they've got and who they haven't. My question would be, who is the ace of base? Because um, <laughs> I want to know who saw the sign and whether they opened up their eyes in order to do it. Um, but if, if you want to get involved with future talent, you can get an offer with the final word. You can get a, a fat discount. You can go to futuretalent.com and you can type in the final word into the promo code bit and you get 15% off your order of sports cards. You get personalized service through Heath, who's one of the great human beings of, of this planet, um, one of the best people I've ever known. Uh, he will doubtless mm-hmm. look after you, especially if you say you're coming via the final word. If you've heard us talk about future talent and you're involved in a, in a footy club or a cricket club or a netball club or any sporting organization, get yourself a very snazzy looking card and impress the kids or the, the adults for that matter who, who play for your club so they can come away with something special, a, a serious memento, a footy card with their name and their picture and their information on the back will be something they actually treasure from your club. futuretalent.com.au um, Look them up in conjunction with The Final Word. Hi, I'm Ian Chapel. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Mel Jones, so great to have you on The Final Word, something we've been talking about doing for, well, quite a long time, really, uh, given you've been a listener to the show and we've corresponded and talked about uh, what we've done on The Final Word through the English summer especially. But putting that to one side, your 2019 has been gigantic. And let's start there before going back through, I guess, your life in cricket. Um, 2019, among other things, saw you elevated to the board of Cricket Australia, a director of Cricket Australia. Um, it, it was widely uh, seen as a triumph, hailed as a triumph, getting you, uh, someone of your, your your pedigree and your skills onto that board. Um, but though it's, it, it is a, a tough organisation to be an administrator of, isn't it? And being a board director, has that sort of hit you yet that it's a, it's a great privilege, but also it's going to be a big challenge? Yeah, I hope people are still saying that in 12 12- months, two years, end of term kind of time as well when it all comes around for for re-election. Oh, look, I didn't go into it lightly by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I I mentioned to a few people that when I was first approached, I I seriously thought it was a it was a joke. I thought someone was pulling my leg because um, the, the John Allen who rang me actually introduced himself as headhunter, and I think that sort of threw me massively. Who introduces themselves as a headhunter? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I was like, "What's going on here?" <laughs> um, and then when it all sort of started sinking in that it was um, it was a serious approach, um, it was yeah. I think the first thing when I realised it was serious, the first thing I thought was well, not a chance, you know, because of life traveling and um, just the state of play and where I was at. And I was thinking about getting back onto boards, but I'd, I don't think I'd ever thought cricket, probably because I didn't want to be the cricket girl. I didn't want to be identified as just everything and be all an indoor cricket. Um, but then when I started sort of – and I, it was, I was approached during the um, – the Lord's Test in the, during the Ashes. So you sort of, you know, you're sitting on lots of trains, as you guys would know. You'd know tr- London trains and England trains better than anyone. And you're sort of travelling around, so there's a bit of think time. Um, 
and the more I thought about it and spoke to people, particularly yeah, my mum, who's my, my go-to on a lot of things. She's not a sports person at all, so she's pretty pragmatic about things. Um, and a variety of other people, um, I thought, yeah, it was, I'm going to make this sound really blasé, but I thought, why not? <laughs> I thought. <laughs> and I think the big thing for me was that um, having been on the Red Dust Board, which is a health promotion charity that works with Indigenous kids here in Australia, and Bowls Australia, I thought it was a, it was a nice progression, but at at the heart of it, I love the game. So I thought, rather than sit there and, you know, it's so easy to sit back and sort of throw stones at things and go, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. And I thought, right, roll your sleeves up, Jones, <laughs> get in it. Was there also a sense that now is a good time to get things moving and to make change? It seems like within CA at the moment, there's an appetite for that and there's some momentum and, and quite a few people getting things going that might not have got going a couple of years ago. Yeah, massively. And, you know, I'm probably writing on the coattails of a couple of things that I think are absolutely fantastic. The parental policy that came through uh, a couple of months ago. They've got um, the transgender policy. There's all these things that have sort of coming through that, you know, very... Um, quite a socially conscious kind of person. That's that's my mum coming out in me. And so those sorts of things sort of indicated to me that um, that Cricket Australia is really looking a little bit more holistically at the game and not just so much about, um, you know, the wins and losses and, and the bottom dollar as much, um, which is which is nice. Yeah, and what the, what the men's team's doing and if they've won the Ashes or lost the Ashes and, you know, all decisions are made in the cycle about that. <laughs> this is it. It is. I mean, they've gone through this whole one-team kind of concept and that's that's something that, I think I'd really like to be pushing more and more that that one team isn't just the Australian men's team and the Australian women's team, but it's it's the indoor teams, it's the disability teams, it's the Indigenous teams, um, it's the team in it, the office and, and around the states and all those sorts of things. And I think if we can get that kind of focus moving forward, you know, hopefully we tick a few more boxes. Oh, I'm sounding like a board member already, aren't I? That's awful. <laughs> tick, tick some boxes, yeah. mo- moving forward. Uh... Mel, 2019, I said that uh, you know, obviously it was ended with the directorship, but it, it, it started on the 26th of January uh, being made an order of Australia. Now, if you go back, say, five or six, Six years when you you know left the game and you were working sort of peripheral to it, a little bit of commentary, but sort of largely outside of the day to day, outside of the public eye, I suppose. Uh, to think that you'd be uh, able to receive such an honour, um, how, how did you how did you feel when when you got the phone call for that? I think I'm almost going to repeat myself. I th- thought again, I thought it was a bit of a joke. <laughs> just, um, and there we, a lot of people pranking you. I know, this is, this is yeah, my life, my daily life. <laughs> Um, we played a bit of phone tag with the woman that originally was trying to get hold of me and then I didn't hear from them so I thought oh well no, it must have been, I don't know, they must have got the wrong Jones. You know, there's a f- few M. Joneses mm. around the world. Um, or they just take it away if you don't yeah, actually that's it. call. It's like, it's like a booking at a restaurant or something. You're like, well, sorry, sorry. You've, you've had your chance. <laughs> yeah, call that's back. it. Um, and, and then they said, don't tell anyone. Um, and Well, I told my mum, but I didn't tell anyone else. And, and then I sort of forgot about it because I sort of yeah. got told, I think it was like November, late October, November. And so, of course, it wasn't until Jan... Um, that it was um, it was fully announced. Mm. So I was sort of, and we're right in the middle of the, the cricket season. So you, you're working, and you just sort of you get on with things. And then it's it's one of those things. It was almost like um, ringing the bell at Lords. You don't realise how big it is until it actually happens. Mm. And then on the day itself, we had the um, we had the WBBL final, and it was just that sort of got going. And my phone kept buzzing. I'm thinking, what is going on? Yeah. And I realised, you know, it was everyone finding out and abusing me for not telling them and letting them know. <laughs> and I sort of, sort of forgot myself. Um, and it was a, it was a lovely day to um, to go to um, government house too because it was um, my mum and my aunt came down. Uh, I had my housemate with me. Um, Bobby and it was just when you're sort of there and you're looking at the people in the room 
Um, it felt, yeah, how, how do I say this? You just, I suppose you're just going to say it. You know, it was very white. It was very male. Um, I've, I was the youngest person in the room, which is scary mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm no young chicken anymore either. So I used to live next to a Freemason's temple. I know exactly right. how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, and you could sort of see people sort of, sort of looking across thinking, hmm, I wonder what she's done. Is she yeah. here representing someone right. or something along those lines? So it was nice in the sense of you can start having that conversation. And so you realise when, you, when you're looking at a room like that, that um, in, in a lot of ways, Australia is very still represented by a very small minority. And I think, so mm. fast forward again to being on the Cricket Australia board, that was probably the one of the nicest things about the congratulations messages was people coming up to me, randoms, and just saying... You know, the board's looking and reflecting more of what general club cricket's like and and Australian cricket, and and we love seeing that. So, um, so yeah, sort of the bookends of the moments almost in Jan and at the end of the year of, Mm. uh, I just guess, a a changing space. Is the correct protocol if you're texting someone who's just got an order of Australia medal, do you say OAMG? Is that... (laughs) There's, I've, I've been given a lot of letters since this, this day. <laughs> Some I don't think I can repeat. One more 2019 tidbit, uh, MJ, before we, I guess, um, go, go back through yeah, your, your story of, of cricket and uh, your life in the game. Um, this was the year you were off the booze as well, which I'm not going to overstate, but you've talked about it loads, about how you made a decision to um, go booze-free for 365 days. And um, How did you arrive at that decision and what's the experience been like? It's yeah. significant, Adam. That is significant because... You know, Mel Jones certainly gave it her all and went out on the town before this year. I, I, I didn't want to be as explicit um, so as that, but all I'm saying is there's that, yeah. a process, right? So, yeah, I want to know more about that. Well, I mean, I mean, it's a bigger deal than it might have been for some people. Yeah. Anyway. As, as we sit here in my apartment in, in Melbourne and I've got my Heineken Zero in my hand and I've even gone down and, and I've got Jeff a nice little uh, IPA. So I hope he's enjoying that. Um, but the decision behind it, I was actually, it's actually all up, it's 11 months. So I was in a, um, uh, I'm an ambassador with uh, Change Our Game, uh, which is a Victorian state government um, initiative here with, um, with women and girls in sport. And we're in a leadership masterclass with all the ambassadors. And I started looking at the 12 months ahead and I went, it was almost blowing my mind how I was going to get through that 12 months because it was sort of went to India for the IPL then we had Mm. the women's challenge the women's IPL exhibition matches at the end of that I think I was only home for four days and then it was straight to England for the men's world cup which rolled in overlapped with the women's ashes into the men's ashes I land back in Australia um, the summer starts with Fox Sports so it was straight into JLT Cup Um, women's standalone WBBL Fox was starting a whole new show called The Blast, and then we start with the T20 Women's World Cup. And I just looked at the year, and there was just no gaps or anything. And I thought I've got to start yep. to look after myself. You guys will know this more, more than mm. anyone. Um, and I just and I wanted to make sure that everything that I was doing, I was doing to my best ability. Um, so it was it was one of a number of things. But this is probably, as you mentioned, probably the most significant in terms of my life because I like a beer, I like a red wine, I like a gene tea. <laughs> Sometimes mix them all together. Not all together. No, no, no. <laughs> Um, and but then I thought, I, and I walked out of the the um, the day, and mm. they all had drinks there at the end. I said, "I'm not drinking." I just told everyone straight away. I rang people, I put it on Facebook. I said, "I'm not drinking until yep. March 8. 
and that, I thought that would be a perfect way to celebrate. Fingers crossed, a jam-packed MCG, have a champagne um, and celebrate. Fingers crossed, an Australian win, but you know, uh, a world record and a, and a great tournament. It, it, it's almost self-enforced. I, mean, I got off the booze for the World Cup and the Ashes, similar reasons. But you know, we didn't have time to have a beer. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah Adam, you, you were with me. You you weren't deciding not to drink, but you basically never had a minute to do it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't make the same sort of uh, dedicated um, pledge that you did, Jeff. But I mean, you could probably count on one hand the beers I had the chance to in- <laughs> enjoy uh, between the start of the World Cup and, and certainly the the middle of the Ashes. I think I perhaps um, perhaps played a few more shots towards the back end of the Ashes. But um, we were, yeah, due to the hours we were keeping, in hindsight, maybe I should have uh, made some sort of um, some sort of pledge as you did, MJ, because it it um, it does. Well, I found anyway, it, it does um, give you energy that you didn't realise you had. And the other thing that I found was I just lost weight. <laughs> just uh, just a real simple aesthetic kind of thing uh, that that uh, that not drinking just just helps you stay more trim. So maybe next year I'll do something yeah. like that. Possibly, yeah, no, definitely wait. Um, you sleep better. Um, yep. So your quality of sleep is better. So that's where you get that reclaimed energy and time yeah. the next day. Uh, <coughs> bank balance. Bank is, balance. Yeah. That blew my mind. I kept looking at my bank and being like, why do I still have money? Money. I've, I've still got the same <laughs> amount of money I had a week ago. Like, none of it's gone. And I couldn't work it out. And yeah, then yeah. And finally I tweaked. And the nicest part about it was people were so supportive. I thought I was going to sort of cop the – and here's a perfect example. When the Australian – team retained the ashes at Manchester. Mm. Justin Langer invited us into into the rooms with the boys straight after the game, um, which was, I mean, the ashes was just a, a bucket list for me anyway, just to see the whole thing, but mm. to actually work on it um, and be that close to it all. So I'm pinching myself, I've pinched myself daily with my job, but this was this was an amazing sort yeah. of moment to, to walk into the rooms and JL was trying to pass me a beer, um, knowing that it Usually, I would have more than happily had one. Yeah. And I said, oh, look, actually, I'm, I'm not drinking. And I was waiting for the, oh, come on, don't be soft. We've just won the ashes, yeah. you know, that kind of mentality. And Nathan Lyon was sort of scooting past. He went, oh, no problems. We've got Powerade. We've got water. What can I get you? And I just went, wow. Nice. I said, that's... That, that that sort of it blew me away to start with, yeah. um, but it was you're right. It was just really really lovely, and it's just nice to see. I guess that changing face of sport and and in that kind of environment too. That and when you sort of look at the Australian men's team now, there's a number of non-drinkers in there, so I think they're just used mm. to that that dialogue more, which is which is great. I would have killed for a beer though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there the. the the moments where you're thinking, can we just rework time yeah. so that this particular day is actually 12 months in the future, mm-hmm. therefore it's legit? Well, I was telling Jeff, Adam, that I've I've taken uh, photos of the wines that I've missed out on, on on significant nights out with people around the world over this period of time. So I'm, I'm going to purchase those and have them. And so when those people come over, we will relive the moment and, and have that wine then. It's a lovely way to do it. Mel, you were born in England. You mentioned England before uh, as where we were this year through the World Cup and Ashes. I don't but, tell too many people. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> born in England, came to Australia as a, as a, young, as a young girl, but of, of uh, Trinidadian extraction through your father's side, who you've talked a lot about in terms of having um, g- generated your love in the game by sending you copies of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, uh, which I thought was yep. a, a lovely little tidbit given that um, we do this show in conjunction with Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the, the new version of it. But... Um, 
Yeah, if you could just expand upon that a little bit about the fact that you were living in Australia, your dad was living in a different part of the world, but he still had that yep. big influence on you in terms of loving the sport. Yeah, mum, mum met dad when she was over in, in London working. Um, I was born in a very small um, town called Barnstable in Devon because um, mum was teaching there at, at the time. Um, mum was always going to come back to Oz so she came back with me as, as a three-month-old baby um, and so yeah I didn't meet my dad till I was 16 but he was he was part of that West Indian community in England when he, he came over in the mid-50s um, with mm. a lot of the West Indian guys to get a university degree to then go back and work with Shell or the big sort of um, oil companies and gas that were sort of mm. starting up in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, they didn't go back. And then hence the, the community that's sort of there now. And he played a lot of um, uh, sort of, not county cricket, but a couple of divisions below. But because the community was still quite mm. small over there at the time, everyone knew everyone. So he's he was mates with Joel Garner and Malcolm Marshall and the like. So when whenever they toured, he would organise for tickets for me to go along and watch. Um, and he'd send the Wisden Cricket magazines all signed by the players. And, and for me, I've mentioned this a couple of times in interviews, when, when I was growing up in Melbourne, it was a very white city. It's yeah. completely different these days. So when the West Indian men's team were touring, one that, well, they were winning, so I'm, I'm running on the coattails of that, but I look like them in mm. comparison to everyone else, including my family here. So there was an affinity to to cricket and to West Indian culture through that. How difficult is that when you're you're growing up as a black woman but you're separated from that part of your heritage? You're you're in this completely white environment where yeah. you, you don't have direct contact with 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 part of who you are. Yeah, it's it wasn't difficult because it was only what I knew in a sense and my family were outstanding. I mean, that could have it was I, particularly for my grandparents, I think, who sadly have passed away. But I, I think about them, they came from Rutherglen, which was, I don't know, when my mum was growing up, it would have been a town of 500 people sort of thing. Um, and it was a pretty simple lifestyle back then sort of thing. So to, all of a sudden for mum to bring me back, which was an illegitimate black child, that's that's a big confronting, you know, slap in the face kind of moment for people. So conservative. Yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, Church of England. It was yeah. yeah. So but um but the family were were great and I think particularly my mum would have protected me from a lot. I think originally she was looking at moving to to Darwin when we first came back. So it would be easier on me. But my mum is one of the strongest, most courageous women I know. So she, you know, nah, back to Melbourne. And I'm very thankful for that as well. But in saying that, she, I think she also realised it, it was going to be tough on me at times. So she, she's not a sports person at all. Mm. You know, day one of a test match, 30 minutes in, she will still ask, who's winning, dear? You know, kind of, <laughs> like, okay, we're getting there, mum, we're getting there. But I think because of that, she was, you know, she was super proactive in just saying to me, you can try whatever you want, whether it's, playing the trombone badly or, you know, mm. going off to... Does anyone play it well? No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Basketball, what have you. Um, yeah, she was she was an absolute trooper. I should actually sit down with her at some stage and, and chat to her about different moments because how you see them as a kid would have been completely different than what she would have seen them, um, just to see how much she did protect me. So you end up back in Melbourne and then there's a, another major intervention when it comes to cricket. Again, something you've, you've talked about before, but uh, would love to uh, get a broader perspective on uh, than simply a line in an article saying that Peter Hanscom once coached Mel Jones, Peter Hanscom's dad rather, once coached Mel Jones uh, as a kid. Um, how did that play out exactly? How did it turn out that, that Peter Hanscom's dad was kind of the, the man who, who steered you towards, uh, well, being a state cricketer and beyond? Yeah, I ended up going to um, Elwood High, went to Middle Park Primary School and then um, went to Elwood High School with a lot of the um, mates from the primary school um, and got there and we had a, a fantastic 
PE staff there. Deb Noonan drove a lot of the um, the girls sort of side of things, and she was very proactive in making sure that there was teams for any sport that we wanted to try and get involved in. And so when there was a couple of other girls there, and when a cricket team started to form, my geography teacher, John Hanscom, just loved his cricket. He, he was from England, um, and he started coaching us. And because we obviously Pete wasn't even born then, so you have no concept of you know what's going to happen in the future. And he was he was my first ever cricket coach. I can remember vividly being in the Elwood High um, gym, which sadly I went there last year, and it's still exactly the same. I think I could still see holes in the roof from you know where I'm trying to you know smoke it, and he's like hit it along the ground, Melanie, and I'm like yes, John. <laughs> Sorry, yes, Mr. Hanscom. Um, but he, it was the old school teachings of you know playing the V, and he was very big on footwork and using your feet to smother the ball which you can mm. see in, in Pete's play um, and he got us involved in tours he we toured New South Wales as a girls cricket team and then we went to New Zealand which back then wow. was just never ever heard of um, and then he got us involved in local women's cricket clubs and even back then I didn't even know there was an Australian women's cricket team I just thought I was just playing for the fun of it because I absolutely absolutely loved it um, but he was he was the instigator of absolutely everything. I'm 100% sure if I didn't go to that high school and meet him, then mm. we wouldn't be sitting here chatting all these things today with a non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> <laughs> so he's the, you, your, your dad's that initial awakening of the interest and then... Yeah, um, I think I always would love cricket and I would mm. have watched it, but I probably would have continued on in little athletics or basketball or some other, other team sport. And funnily enough, I was only talking to people today about it, I, I love cricket because it's a team sport, but you don't have to touch anyone. Mm. Whereas netball, <laughs> basketball, all these sports, there's so much physical, like touching. And I'm, yeah. I'm not a, my friends are, I'm not a hugger. So they, okay. friends go on about this all the time <laughs> about me. So cricket was, was perfect. <laughs> um, what, was, what was it like emotionally meeting your dad for the first time when you were 16? Yeah, it was it was draining because he he came out here and it was 1988 um, and we were living in Port Mum and I were living in Port Melbourne at the time. So it was when the tall ships came in for the centenary. Oh yeah, Bob Hawke sent everyone the the coin that you know. That's the, it. I remember being what grade prep or whatever it was, getting the yep. bicentennial mm. coin. The bicentennial Probably coin. Probably still got it in the box. Somewhere. <laughs> um, and Dad said he was arriving in a specific day, yeah. and so I took myself out to the airport, and I waited there. I reckon it was like six hours, and there was a muck up with the dates. We got delayed. I can't quite remember what it was. So then I went home, and I'm like, Mum's like, where is he? I'm like, I don't know. And then we finally heard, got a phone call because back then there was no emails yeah, or texting no or anything. Yeah, you can't you can't check up flights. No, you? that's it. So went out again, and there was a delay, and so it was another three or four hours that I was just standing there waiting. I'm thinking this is ridiculous. And then the plane finally arrived, and I didn't really like. I had a photo of him, hmm. but because you never met him, you don't really know. But then there would have there was. <laughs> This is quite bad, but there was there was about three other tall black men that came off the same flight, and I'm sort right. of like looking at them, trying to get, you know, smiling at each <laughs> each one, going, "Is this him?" You know? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's quite no. awkward. All these guys thinking, "What is this kid doing?" Yeah, so he was out for. I think it was about six weeks, and then I went back to England for the winter, and mm. then I didn't see him again for it. We were in contact for ages, but I didn't see him probably for another. Th- 13 years wow. and then since getting into this caper of commentary stuff you know, mm. get to see him 
nearly every year. Because you're every time you're in England, yeah. you can, you, and and so that relationship is is still good. Yeah, and it was the, the, the most amazing thing was my first Caribbean Premier League was a couple of years ago. So that was the first time I'd actually gotten to Trinidad. I'd been to the West Indies, I'd been to Antigua to yeah. watch cricket and the likes. Um, so I met family for the first time, and my mum would often right. say she would get so frustrated because even though I hadn't met my dad till I was sixteen, I would do and say things and phrase things exactly like that. <laughs> so my mum would like you don't look like me, you don't sound like me, but here you are looking and sounding exactly like your father who you've never met before. But it was amazing meeting, I met these, my, my dad's uh, two cousins and one of their daughters and they were just these, and I was quite nervous because you thought, yeah. I could be meeting, you know, just some absolute nuffies, like what if mm. I don't like them, this could be the longest night yeah. ever. Um, and they were three of the most amazing powerful, strong, independent women that I'd ever met. Right. It was just it was just outstanding. And and what did that how did that make you feel about having I guess connecting with something else out there in the world? Yeah, it, it's this is gonna sound really strange too. It's it was the first time I've really f- felt in a lot of ways connected to the black side of me, you know, the, the coloured side, because, you know, growing up here in Australia, and as I mentioned, my white family have been absolutely outstanding, but you sort of grow up in a very white world. When I first met Dad over in England, he, he, I don't know if this is a word or a phrase that people are going to yell at me, blackified me in a sense, because we went off and we went book shopping. Um, so, you know, I came back with just a whole suitcase of um, books, you know, Martin Luther King, um, a lot on slavery in America, a lot of um, C.L.I. James from from the West Indies. Um, so I had all these books, that I was, and I was starting to uh, Maya Angelou, which I you know absolutely love her writing. Mm. Um, so I started reading all this and actually getting a sense of you know that side of it. So then when I went over there, it was just you know we started talking about the the family tree, and I'm going to have to probably do one of those ancestry things um, because my mum's side we know we can trace back on my grandmother's side to people that were in the Burke and Wills expedition and we sort of can go back to dad's a Jones dad um, my grandfather's a Jones so Wales and Nans and Davidson's in Scotland so you can sort of trace that yep. back mm. pretty easily um, but dad's side obviously being you know, black in the West Indies is, is slave trade sort of side so it was, it was really interesting sort of sitting back and trying to get a sense of almost who you are and where you've come from. Did you sense that when you started coming through the ranks as a Victorian player? I mean, you play in the underage squads and, you know, the, the progression is a fairly familiar one through the pathway as it existed then to the Australian under-21s and so on. But at that sort of young age, did you feel as though you, you were you were representing something more than just yourself in that you were a young girl of colour playing yeah. in a predominantly or well, almost exclusively white team? Yeah, um, you... Y- you know it through different things, um, and it's more the way in which people react to you more so than anything else. Um, you know, and, and it's something that you you try and you try and basically fit in. Every every kid growing mm. up is different in some way, shape, or form, and so they try and hide it to make themselves just fit in and make life a little bit easier. Um, hiding your colour is a pretty difficult one to try and um, sort of put to a side and I've told this story before too I remember being in a 200 metre final race at um, at Olympic Park with little laths and I don't know how I made the final because 200 metres was almost long distance for me I was like 70 metres 100 metres that's it you know (laughs) and I don't know if someone fell over and I don't but I've qualified last. I was in lane eight, which is the slowest in, in the final. And so you get on the marks, you know, and so I'm ready and I'm thinking, I was just almost laughing to myself, thinking this is quite funny that I'm, I'm in this final. And we got down on the blocks and then it was stand up and the girl in lane four 
um, sort of left her lane and walked over to her mum, and which was she was sort of on the sideline near me. And the comment was along the lines of she was almost in tears, going, okay. "It's like sort of hyperventilating, going, I'm not going to win, I'm not going to win." And her mum's like, "You'll be fine, you'll be fine." She's like, "Oh, there's a black girl in the race." And and I looked around. I was like, oh, who's who's where? Who, yeah, where? <laughs> you don't really realise it. Because I'm like, and then I realised she was talking about me, and I'm like, I'm in lane eight. I'm like, I'm not. You're yeah. gonna absolutely whip my backside. <laughs> this is ridiculous. And then I told mum afterwards, and we all had a good giggle in the in the car on the way home, <laughs> kind of thing. But then you look back on those moments then, and you, you yeah, that's when you sort of realise that I probably was blasé about a lot of it. I think mm. I probably just missed a lot mm. of it. Which is probably a good thing as well. <laughs> um, when you you finished year twelve, you were studying in Bendigo and you were trying to play state cricket at the same time and 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 juggle it all. Um, tell us about that period. Yeah, I um I wasn't I was okay at school. I probably just didn't apply myself um, well enough, and so um, didn't get the grades. I wanted to become a PE teacher and go to Victoria University and do human movement. Um, was way off the grades. So on the very last day before the next year started at university, there was a hotline you could ring up to find where there were courses and spaces available left. And so I ended up in Bendigo doing this course called, oh, God, I can't remember it, Bachelor of something. But it was basically six subjects, and then you specialised in the one of them the year after sort of thing. And I just thought, i just got to get into uni, so I've got my foot in the door, and then I can transfer. So I was... I was Went up to Bendigo, um, and I was travelling back twice a week um, for people. It's what's a two-hour drive, yeah. sort of train trip. Travelling back twice a week to to go to training and then and back up again. And I started the second year, and I got to about the end of first term, and it was just doing my head in. It wasn't a course that I wanted to do, mm. um, and. I was the only thing that I enjoyed up there was I hooked up with Bendigo United Cricket Club and just trained with the guys <laughs> as much as I could if I had to mm. miss sessions. Um, and there were some great people there. John Turner was—he's a bit of a legend around the Bendigo area. He was—he was fantastic. Um, and I really enjoyed the time up there. It was great, sort of being up in the country as well, which was great. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to be back in Melbourne. So Mum said, "Oh, well, if you're not enjoying it, back you come." Um, and then I just did odds and sods for a few years and kept applying for Vic Uni. And it took me. <laughs> It took me. It was on my fourth attempt that I, I got into Vicuni, and I think I got in because I lived in the western suburbs, and they were just probably sick of me. <laughs> like it was just, <laughs> they was just like, oh, gosh, I just put her in. <laughs> so in amongst that, I, I did a little bit of administration for Vic Sport, which is the mm. umbrella body for sports in in Victoria. Did a bit with um, Australian Sports Medicine Federation. Bit of development work with Cricket Victoria, and I actually. As much as I sort of sound as if I couldn't get anything finished, it it actually gave me a really good grounding in sports admin really early doors. Um, And I'm probably using more of that now. Um, Yeah, but anyways, yeah, mature age student at at university and and we went on from there. Well, it it was a tough time in Bendigo in the 90s because there was a real slow period um, in between gold mining was finished and meth hadn't started. (laughs) So there wasn't a whole lot to do. I say that I spent a lot of time in Bendigo myself. Hey, and, pub and crawls were very cheap, though. True. They were 50-cent pots <laughs> sort of thing. So, yeah. We keep coming back to alcohol, which is not a good thing. <laughs> Give us a bit of an insight what it was like being a, a Victorian player in that era. I guess the early 90s we're up to now, aren't we, where, you're, where you've progressed through the junior ranks. You've played for the Australian under-21s and, and you're getting an opportunity to, to play for Victoria before you've played for Australia this year. What's state cricket like um, in the... Uh, in the in that era for as a Victorian player, it was probably the halcyon days for Victorian 
women's cricket back then because they had some of the absolute legends of the game. So Sharon Treadray, who I played a lot of club cricket with, was just my idol for so many reasons. She's got the the most amount of World Cups to her name. She was, they reckon, and I've, it's hard to tell because you're a kid, so everything's a lot bigger and faster and everything when, when you're a lot, lot younger. But you speak to people, they say she was the fastest she's seen. So a lot of people comparison with Catherine Fitzpatrick. So she could bowl as quick, do as much with the ball, and she was a gun bat as well. She was the ultimate all-rounder. Um, so, you know, you had the likes of her there and, and Charlie Haywood, and there was just this amazing group of, of talented women who who were your mentors and your idols and the ones you sort of looked up to. And it was, you know, it was purely amateur, but they were completely professional in, in everything that they did. Um, and they were, yeah, I mean, Rachel Haynes was very complimentary the other day when the Australian women's team broke the ODI streak of the team that I was playing in with Belinda Clark of 17 on the trot. And and she, she herself said is exactly what we say about the ones before us, is that you can do all this and create these records and be so professional and people can praise you because of the foundation that had been set before you. And yeah. we, we had a great foundation. And you, from that state um, pick, you found yourself as a surprise pick in the national team. You played it. You debut at Wesley College? Yeah. Is that right? That's... The Purple People Eaters? <laughs> I, can, I can remember getting – well, I don't remember my name getting called up because I was – we're at the SCG and we just lost the state final to New South Wales again. Um, and I was – I was Boring. Having, yeah. Do something else in New South Wales. <laughs> Get a hobby. And we're in the, the beautiful old pavilion. I never you, – you're in there and you're just looking around. And I, was, I can remember eating a prawn cocktail. And I never really had a lot of prawn. And I'm like, this is really nice. And, you know, the old Thousand Island dressing. It's the little prawns with the Thousand Island dressing in it. Like in, a, in a glass. In a martini a glass. Cup. And I thought I was just really special. It's just a waste of a martini glass. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I think my focus and attention was so much on this. And I never, wasn't really paying attention to the team because I just didn't think I was going to get picked in it. And everyone's like, put your... Put your cocktail down and up, get up. I'm like, what are you talking about? Put your prawn away. <laughs> Put your prawns away. I'm like, why? Hands off my prawns. I love my food. Um, and so, yeah, my first game was at Wesley College and Brett Sipthorpe, who is now mm. the curator at the Wacker, he was the curator for this series. Wow. Yeah, yeah so he was, he was there at the time. So we've chatted about it <laughs> the last couple of, well, last week as well. Um, it was searingly hot. I remember this. So it was against Pakistan. Um, and the Pakistan women's team back then is a whole podcast in itself because they were, they weren't sort of official at the time, but in the sense for us, they certainly were. And we were trying to support them coming through into women's cricket. Um, the captain and vice captain, the Khan sisters, their dad was a carpet mogul um, so they'd sort of grown up in England went through college over there but they were they almost had to get security to protect them at grounds so that they could train and play because this was back in 1997 at the start um, so they came over for this tour and this series was in the middle of Ramadan for them so it's Melbourne like today like it was 42 degrees every single day and they'd only just started playing cricket um, and they were up against you know the likes of Belinda Clark and Catherine Fitzpatrick and Lisa Kitely and and they weren't they weren't drinking or eating, and it was just it was. I hadn't just... put the pieces together on that. I, I, I knew you'd debuted against Pakistan, but I mean, uh, when Shamin Khan died last year, there was a, an outpouring of 
um, uh, grief on the basis that, you know, what a pioneer, the, the Khan sisters yeah. you mentioned before. I mean, the death threats they had to experience from the from the local newspapers when they initiated the Pakistani cricket side. You talk about the, the dad's carpet company, the, the way yeah. they had to um, surreptitiously get themselves out of the country. I think they had to, I think they had um, to hide, come on their, holiday hide all their uniforms and all these sorts yeah. of things and, and so yeah. forth. But you were, I didn't realise that you were kind of part of that, that, that first tour they were on in 97. Yeah. And again, you sort of don't realise at the time because, you know, I'm getting into the team. I'm, you're sort of a bit focusing on yourself and you're like, mm. right, okay, don't say anything and just, you know, do all the right things. And you're sort of just worried about it. And then, you know, you have a couple of functions with them and, and things like that. But the mm. whole backstory, we probably didn't really understand and know until post-tour kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, it's an amazing story in itself. Yeah, you're coming from Australia where it's not as hard. So, you know, they've to your mind, they've just shown up. Yeah. Here they are. Basically, like mm. the Pakistan mm. men's team, you know. Mm. You've, okay, you've been picked and over you come and yep. here we go. <laughs> so, and you have this great early couple of years. Um, you win the World Cup in 97 at Eden Gardens, you know, amazing. no biggie. Um, yeah, don't be. <laughs> and, and then make a ton on test debut all, all within 12 months. You know, the world's at your feet at that point. It was um, – the World Cup was was unbelievable. We were lucky enough, 1994, the Australian youth team went to India and that was some genius there by um, – it was Women's Cricket Australia back then. So they hadn't mm. – the integration hadn't started, right. hadn't begun or, um, with cricket, the Australian Cricket Board, which is what it was known back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so – Lucky enough to have um, some pretty switched on people involved in Women's Cricket Australia, as it was known back then, to send a youth team to India in 1994. And so I think there was six of us mm. that from that youth team that then got selected in the um, in the World Cup side in 1997. And I can remember we, we showed a video of the 94 trip to the team before we left, and half the room got... Um, motion sickness from watching the video because we're oh, just cool. video videoing from buses and trains and everything. <laughs> They're like, "Oh, we don't want to go." No. So was it, was it, was the video just like brace yourself. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, and it was it was, a, it was just a massive shock and eye. And it's so many. We've got Lisa Kitely from Mudgee, who's a meat and three veg girl. She was known as the Tuck Shop because she just had her suitcase of clothes and kit, and then she had another suitcase which, when she opened, was just muesli bars and, <laughs> and food. She was just she was not getting involved in any kind of eating over there at yeah. all. And it was I think we went in ranked fourth because it would have been off the rankings from the previous World Cup. Yeah, and we we travelled the most when we counted up the miles that they got us travelling all over the country in trains and buses. They really wanted Oof. to make sure that we were, <laughs> we were experiencing everything. And that in itself, though, the stories and just experiencing India like that was... Uh, yeah, money can't buy experiences in a lot of the ways. And I was chatting to Belinda Clark about the semi-final. We were lucky to get through the semi-final against India. We just snuck through. And it was at an army barracks in Delhi. And it was where the wicket ran north south, so right. and it was fog. It was just this random day, but not they wouldn't wouldn't allow a lot of people in to watch it. Our Australian High Commissioner came down. He brought eskies full of champagne and VB beers for us to have because oh. <laughs> it was uh, Christmas Eve. It was it was just it was brilliant. It was Christmas Eve. Yeah, we played over. Yeah, we had Christmas there, and then um, we played the final at Eden Gardens. And the sports minister was a transport minister, and he wanted to create a world record of the most amount of women participating in a World Cup final. So we bust in. Now the the number is sort of up for debate a little bit. Mm. Um, 
but the top end was 80,000. It felt like about 150,000 at Eden Gardens. It was the Jesus. old Eden Gardens when they didn't have the, the individual seats. It was just yeah. the concrete tiers. And, yeah, with, with where all the fires were getting. Yes. <laughs> but because it was 80,000 women, there was no fires. They were very civilised. They were right. beautiful coloured saris. So visually, it was stunning. Because you looked up on the ground, and thankfully we were playing New Zealand. So there were <laughs> But they knew exactly where the game was at. So as the game yeah. was unfolding, you could hear this buzz and sort of this murmur and all these sorts of things. It was it was fantastic. And then we win, we go off and celebrate that night, we come back, and there's still thousands of people milling around yeah. Eden Gardens. He forgot he had to bust them home. <laughs> <laughs> so these poor women are still there. And one of them, I, I'm not too sure about Julian if she got bust home or not, but Julian Goswami, who um, went on to become one of the world's you know, premier fast bowlers and captain of India, she she was at that game right. and she didn't know women played and she saw this spectacle and went, oh, this is something I want to do. That's so that whole you can't be what you can't see wow. was one of those moments right there. Standing on the ground and looking up into the grandstands, tell us about that sight. It was a sight and it was a sound. I don't know which struck me more. If India, for those people who haven't been there, bombards your senses beautifully and, and it's it bombards them at the bookends. When I think about that day itself, the the visual was just stunning because of the colour and movement. There was just this sort of swaying of colours throughout the stand um, and the, then the sound. And you couldn't hear, like I was at cover, cover point for most of the game, the next fielder on, you couldn't you couldn't have a conversation because there, there's, the people were completely engaged in the game and just chatting and cheering incessantly throughout the, the time thing. I've never experienced anything like it. Look, you go to your first Ashes tour in 1998, you make your test debut and you join a very famous club, a club which I've been pretty interested in looking through over the years, uh, a century on test debut. Uh, not many people have done it. Only 20 men have done it. You're one of only a couple of women who've, who've uh, achieved it for Australia. Um, 131 uh, at Guildford in Surrey, where you'd later go on to be the captain of the county. But, you know, what a dream beginning, uh, winning a World Cup and getting your baggy green and, and scoring a ton at the first time of asking. Yeah, it was... Um, it's, you catch up with the other players in that team and it was probably, I think, for a lot of us, our favourite tour for a lot of reasons. One of them was that there was a journalist during the 1997 World Cup in India that followed the England team around and wrote a book called Mad Dogs and English Women. And the book came out just before we left this Ashes series, so we read it on the plane going over. And there were some pretty choice passages in there about the Australians. <laughs> so, you know, we, we sat there and we were like highlighting bits and we're getting, we're getting quite fired up. You know, who, who would have thought that, you know, there was a book out about women's cricket. We thought this is great. And then we started reading about ourselves and we're like, hang on a minute. So we sort of got there, you know, all fired up. Um, and we had, um, had the five one-dayers to play and had the whitewash there and won the last one at Lords. And the thing for me for the, the test match, this is what, We've always wanted to play, and we've, we've always wanted to play it based on watching the guys play and the Ashes, men's Ashes, because we never saw the women play at all. Um, I, I can remember vividly saying to myself, you only get one chance to make a good first impression. That was just the, the thing that I had in my head. Um, and we were playing at Guildford. It was an... <laughs> It was an absolute road to start with. Let's, let's, let's just put it out there. Um, and I can remember... Still got to get them. You still do. <laughs> and the amazing thing is, I sort of sort of got past the 50 and I went, oh, okay, well, carry on then. And I was batted a lot with Joanne Broadbent, who played an amazing innings herself. And then I got, I was getting closer and closer to the three figures and, I, and it dawned on me, I'd never hit 100 before. Not... 
not in club cricket, yeah. not in state cricket. And I'm thinking, I could hit my first ever hundred, and it's going to be for Australia. <laughs> and by that stage, I'd got to, I'd got into the nineties, um, and I got to ninety six, and then I'd, I remember hitting the ball pretty well out in the middle of the bat, but I found every fielder straight to the field, and I can see everyone up on the balcony getting ready for it. And sort of rising and sitting, rising. And then all of a sudden I started to hear groans going, oh, that was my teammates actually having a bit of a go at me. I'm thinking, come on, guys. And I also remember going, what do you do? Hmm. What do you do when you, if I get there? What, what am I doing? Hmm. Like I had no idea. And thankfully I must have been in mid-thought about that. And I don't remember a lot of shots in my career or innings, but I do remember that I hit it backward of point for four and off I sent and it was sort of, it's almost this relief I get Julia Price no doubt would have been about time from the from yeah, the yeah. sideline kind of thing um, and yeah to, to know that you've you've done it with someone like Belinda Clark who hit a, a debut um, ton a ton on her debut yeah. um, they're the little things that individually sort of go yeah it's, that's pretty cool you can understand the cricketer who freaks out in their 90s when, yeah. <laughs> at the point where you realise you've literally never made a hundred yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was, um, it's quite ironic, really, isn't it? Well, not ironic. It's weird that you've never hit 100 yet you're playing for Australia as a bat. <laughs> as I've told you uh, a couple of times before, MJ, that's when I meet you. I meet you on when you return back from 98 uh, Ashes Tour, you know, victorious, you know, successful century on debut, and you were visiting schools doing clinics, and it always yep. sticks with me that you are, and, and again, something I've told you before, but worth mentioning uh, for the purpose of the show, you, you taught us how to play the cut shot, which was... I remember distinctly you saying, don't roll your wrists on the ball, hit down on the ball. Rolling your wrists <laughs> is a myth. Hands high to low. It's all about the angle in which you hit the ball, which will dictate where the cut shot goes and, and so on. But that, that, that sticks out to me at Lindale uh, in Dandenong when I was probably in year eight of high school. But uh, the post-Ashes dismount isn't a particularly successful one on the field, but y- you're developing these skills off the field. Like I've, I've read in the past, you said that that period where you were in and out of the Australian team gave you the chance to kind of develop a almost a post cricket plan even though you were still quite young in your Australian career. Yeah, it was um it was I think in part of my mind I was just avoiding full-time work. So I just didn't <laughs> um and I I wanted to sort of when I was in Australia over the summer I wanted to focus on the playing side of things. Um so what I did for six winters. Um the first three I went to South Africa and did a lot of development of, of girls and women's cricket over there and hit all the townships and travelled around and just had, like, it was just an amazing time, particularly in South African history and South African cricket history. Um, the women's team in the 97 World Cup, that was their first um, foray into international cricket. And I was, my goal and passion back then was coaching. So I always wanted to, my thought was that I was always going to get into coaching and ideally go through the, the pathways and potentially coach Australia at, at some stage. And then I went to, I was with uh, Surrey Cricket for, for three years as well. So I was sort of doing that back and forth and mm. I look back at it again and the Surrey Cricket side of things, that's, I got dropped for the 2001 tour to England and that's when I got my first gig as a, as a commentator. So Chris Matthews, the manager, got asked, she said I can't, but I think Mel Jones is over here and you can just ask her. And I, I said no originally because I didn't want to be commentating on a series that I wanted to be playing in. I just thought it'd be too hard. And then they said, it's 300 quid. And I said, tell me where, when and what to wear. <laughs> I'm getting paid more than the girls playing in this game. This is brilliant. And the first commentary game, um, I reckon, was Bob Willis, Paul Allett, Charles Colville and Graham Fowler. And... You know, I know those guys 
very, very well now. And I don't think they'd mind me saying this, but I think for most of them, maybe not Foxy because he was he was a pretty cool dude, still is. Um, it, it almost felt like it was a punishment for them having to do the women's game. It was the ECB and Sky Sports had made a deal with part of the broadcast that they had to do at least one women's game a, a summer. And you know they're watching the women's game just not enthralled in it at all, not appreciative of what's going on and the history of the game and things. And so I'm there trying to, in my own very raw, no idea about media and commentary way, just trying to say, no, the girls are good, in, you know, and, and trying to pump them up as much as I possibly could. And I think that's the beautiful thing about where the progression of the game has come is that you don't have to pump them up when they, they do bad things these days. You can just call it as you, as you see it. Um, but, yeah, that was the first foray into it. I have no idea. I can't even remember coming off and going, did I enjoy it or not? I don't think I, I, don't think I did enjoy it, funnily enough. I think because of I just wanted them, the girls to put on a good show, and I don't think it was a great game. How much did it? hurt you at that time you missed the the world cup in 2000 that ashes tour in 01 yeah it does sting like it's and because i think every player too you go oh, i wasn't communicated well or you know i was playing all right i just need to give me another chance when it all boils down to it and i look back at it um if i was in their positions i probably would have dropped me as well <laughs> um you know hindsight's a wonderful thing um and it's. I mean, we talk about it being completely amateur, and you're juggling a variety of different things. But everyone's in that same boat. We had Olivia Mano, who took herself through medical school and became a doctor at that time. Belinda Clark was CEO of Women's Cricket Australia, going through the integration with Cricket Australia. Like that role itself was just that's full time. But then to be captain of Australia and being one of the best players in the world as well. Um, so you know, if you boil it all down, I just didn't do enough work. Um, pure and simple kind of thing. So then you you sort of give yourself a bit of a kick up the bum and say, stop being a sook. <laughs> and if you really want to get back in, you will. And you you did get back in and your last international game is that another World Cup win yeah. in South Africa where you've been working. So all of these strands of your life come together. Yeah, yeah. That was, um, yeah, it was nice in a way too because I, I really enjoyed the time in South Africa for, you know, the people you meet and just getting a sense of just – a different culture and a different life and I was I actually took my cricket club Essendon Maribyrnong Park Ladies Cricket Club back there in 2013 because I wanted and I took them to India in 2011 because I wanted those two countries made probably the biggest impact on me because they were so different and I wanted our players to understand that we are exceptionally lucky in, in what we've got here in, in our sort of little cricket community and they loved both trips for, for two completely different reasons. 2005 World Cup was a completely different one to 97. It wouldn't be one that you'd look back and say, I thoroughly loved every single moment of it. It was more workhorse. We were there for a, a job. That's sort of where the game had sort of shifted a little bit more. There was a lot of um, people sort of coming towards ends of careers, like Belinda Clark and Catherine Fitzpatrick all sort of retired within the next probably 18 months or so. And there was a big one, and particularly because we'd lost in 2000 in New Zealand in that final. Um, and I can remember watching it with friends over at my place and we just couldn't, we were just stunned, couldn't believe it. And so there was a lot of, there's a little bit of baggage and, you know, wanting to redo the wrong for, for the players that had been involved in that. So it was a, it was a tough one in trying to balance the, the approach to everything. Um, but uh, once again, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a tough unit. It was, you know, we were there for a purpose and, and we got the job done. And once you got the job done, you don't play international cricket again. Was that by design? Were you part of that cohort? Yeah, no, technically they can still pick me because I got dropped. So <laughs> I don't yeah. think I've actually re- retired from, from Australia. Is it? No, no, I got dropped. <laughs> and it was probably in that time where there were 
you know, it was sort of like the likes of Leah Poulton, uh, that sort of era of player sort of mm-hmm. coming through. Um, and typically what happens with World Cups too, it's a four-year cycle, so they want to start bringing a few other people through. And we had the Ashes um, just around the corner as well. And it was it was always going to be tough at, what was I then, 32, 33, to, to sort of get back in again. You mentioned the um, you know that that initial foray into into uh, into commentary and you know pretty amazing circumstances really that you were in England anyway and that you get to sort of be on air with the you know, real big dogs of uh, English commentary yeah. covering your own team. It's it's, a, it's an unusual circumstances to have started. But pressing fast forward a bit to the end of your career, you know you take up a, a separate career. You decide to work in sports management for a period of time, sort of working with women athletes and that is the transition between cricket and, and ultimately getting back on air. Yeah, so I, again, not a lot of my <laughs> life has been by design in terms of my, not cricket, <laughs> my employment. Um, <laughs> so I'd, I'd finished up working, I'd, I'd done six years, five years with Cricket Victoria and I'd sort of gone there, as I mentioned, I wanted to go along the coaching route. I did my level three in 2008 with Darren Lehman and Andrew McDonald and Lisa Kitely up in up in Brisbane. Absolutely loved it. And that's sort of the pathway. Um, but when I got to Cricket Victoria and I was originally signed on to go into high performance, things just shifted um, and I got sort of found myself in game development and wasn't getting out of it anytime soon. So I just went, this is not where I wanted to be. So I just made the decision to quit and I didn't even have a job to go to. And... I did a little bit of work with Red Dust. So Clinton Gribus, who's a magnificent journalist, um, sadly passed away far, far too young. I helped set up a Clinton Gribus scholarship for Indigenous journalists and things like that. And then a good friend of mine, Alison Tranquilly. So she was Alison Cook when she was playing basketball for Australia. So she was in the Michelle Timms yeah. era. Um, she'd finished play- her playing and she started up a talent management company called Majestic Sports, which was just looking after female athletes. And so she knew the whole, and predominantly they were basketballers, some netballers. So she knew the basketball side of things, and she wanted to get me on to help out with a little bit of just PR sort of stuff. But we still didn't have the connections in terms of more the commercial side of stuff. So we went to, it was called Elite Sports Properties at the time, which was run by Craig Kelly, and said, look, we've got this stable of athletes. We think they're absolutely outstanding and by this stage, I'm getting a sense that women's sports just sort of gathering a little bit of momentum, nothing like what we saw probably from 2015 onwards. We came on board with them and, and rang the division there, and so I was there for, for the next five years in the international division, which morphed and then took over, took in uh, cricket as well through Jared Sholley. So I was sort of in amongst Olympians, basketballs, netballs, and, and cricketers there for a while. But as far as commentary goes, you've been, you know, you've, you're involved in it here and there. You're doing bits and pieces for for Channel Nine sometimes on the women's internationals and for for CA I think originally, but it goes really big in 2015 with with the IPL. Yeah. Um, suddenly that. Who would have thought India? That sign up happens. Yeah. And it, and it changes everything. It does. Like, and so all my leave for work was always spent going off on on cricket tours, um, which I absolutely loved. I was telling someone the other day um, that I went, there was a tri-series in Townsville, Mackay with Australia A, India A and South Africa A, the men's. Phil Hughes made the double hundred against South Africa A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hundred overs of commentary by myself to the point where I was was dragging in like this little six-year-old kid who loved South Africa. I'm I'm just dragging people in left, (laughs) right. I was having conversations with myself. So, Jonesy, what do you reckon about that? Well, Mel, I'm glad you asked. Um, It was just, it was ridiculous, but it was also a magnificent grounding because 
you just learn a little bit of the art of just let the game breathe and let people watch it, but mm-hmm. also um, just u- utilization of your voice to get up and down. You could actually have a bit of a play with it. Was in this a sense. TV or radio? This was it was a live stream through yeah. Cricket Australia. Yeah, so it was on on it images. Was, yeah, it was on so images. You, you had yeah. a little bit more room to yeah, shut a little up bit more room to, get, <laughs> to wriggle. Um, so I sort of had that, and because it was just India A too, I sort of yeah. got a to know a couple of those guys. And then 2015, um, BCCI and Star Sports said, you know, we want to have female commentators on the IPL, which was the fifth year of the IPL. Um, and so it was Ishigua, myself, Lisa Stalaker and Andrew Chopra. And we got divided up. The IPL runs in uh, four crews. So each of us went to a crew each. So we didn't even see each other for the entire time we were over there. Um, and it was an eye-opener. Wow. It was... Everything that we think about cricket, just it was like on roids. Everything was just magnified in every sense of the word. The heat, the crowds, the games, the money, the flamboyance, the Bollywood side of things. It was it was crazy, and I think I can probably speak on behalf of um, the girls and saying we were we were shitting ourselves. Can I say shitting ourselves? We were shitting ourselves <laughs> because we more so. <laughs> Not that we didn't, we probably didn't really still know what we're doing technically, but it was more so going into a, a commentary team of former male players, and we just thought they're going to see these girls coming, and they're just going to go, oh, they're going to take over jobs. This is going to be awful. We're going to you know, freeze them out. You know how they're going to react, and it was the complete opposite. I remember mm. my crew. I had Damien Martin, Scott Styrus. Mike Hazeman, who I sort of knew but didn't know because he was an Australian, but he was so much in South Africa. Yeah. Um, and he was, he'd was he been involved in comedy for years and years and years. He was a doyen, you know. And I can remember going for the – because we had lip mics. Right. And you'd go for the mic at the same time. And I'd quickly put mine down because he'd pick his up. And he would just look at me and just sort of wave his hand as if to go, you go, you go, and every single time. And after that right. first game, he just said – Look, this is it's new for you. You're going to make mistakes, but the more you get used to it and comfortable, you'll be fine. And the, our producer also, I've got to give a shout out to Michael O'Dwyer, who's a Sydney based guy. He he threw me in. He said, Right, you're doing a coin toss. And I'm just like, <laughs> You know, it was, M, it was MS Dhoni was my first coin toss. And you know, I'm just like, And Steve Smith, I'm like, Jesus. What is going on? This is madness. Um, but he, he, he taught you the discipline of commentary, which I'd never been taught before. And that's something I'm, I'm very, very strong on. But you started to actually learn about the, the, the art. We talk about 2015 as a pivotal year in women's cricket. I mean, and that's part of it. The IPL having women's voices on it for the first time, pressing fast forward a, a couple of years, there's that sort of iconic photo of the Channel 9 commentary team for the 17-18 Ashes series where, where it was all, all men and, and, and there was a, a lot of response to where's Mel Jones, she's part of the, the nine team. There's the Women's Big Bash League starts, the, the Kia Super League's one year away but it's announced in, in 2015. Um, there's the Women's Ashes in England which has higher attendances than, than ever before and, and you're part of this um, revolutionary commentary team in India. Um, did you sort of feel at that point this is going one direction, and you you were you know right place, right time, right skill set, right experience, all the rest of it, and you kind of sense that you're about to go on an amazing adventure. It was funny. I actually <laughs> I ran it just only two days ago. Was going through my drafts in my my emails, and I came across one um, which is, would have been the 
last one or the first one on on it from 2015 and I'd right. written down you know where what I'd sort of be looking at for the next couple of years and it was so it was so narrow sighted right yeah I just I looked at it now and just went wow I was just way off track there and I think probably because I was enjoying it too much it was just such a wow factor that I thought this, is this actually happening? So you're just sort of riding the merry-go-round a little bit, just going, mm. this is brilliant. And because I was still working full-time, it didn't feel like a full-time job. Mm. I just thought I was just in this amazing space where I could be part of something pretty cool and hopefully doing a good job, and then I'd go back to my job. And mm. then if I get another chance, right, you just jump in again. Um, but that same year was, that's when I think, particularly in Australia, for women's sport, things kicked off as well. So you mentioned the WBBL. The Netball World Cup was on. We had the first ever female co-drivers in Bathurst. Melbourne Cup win to, you know. Michelle Payne. And it just sort of goes goes like that. So um, it was. It, there was a lot going on. There was a lovely, I suppose, expectation that this could be big. So there was this, there was just this hype in, in Australia, particularly around women in sport, um, and cricket was part of that. But I think cricket was more than just a part of it. I think they were a serious leader in it because the WBBL shifted things massively and actually gave a kickstart or a kick up the backside to a lot of other sports. Now, whether the sports did it for the right reason or they did it because they didn't want to be left out, I don't really care. They did it. Yep. <laughs> and, it and things started sort of kicking on from there. It wasn't until I really quit my job that I started thinking seriously seriously mm. about where do I want to take this media yeah. stuff and can I can I do it full time and then you shit yourself because you're going freelance as you guys know and then it's well it's, it's kind like, of that freelance circuit isn't it I mean we spoke to Natalie Jamanos during the World Cup uh, MJ for uh, and she kind of went into went into a, a, a similar conversation about that suddenly you're on the freelance beat and she's been doing it for a yeah. while of course but um, the demand for your services is through the roof and I think you mentioned that you're on the road for eight months during 2018 you would have been on the road for perhaps just as many in, in 2019. And, and it's a very different style of life to what you've been accustomed to, even though you'd bounced between England and Australia during your playing career. Yeah, it's a different beast. And I think for the male commentators, it's still very similar because they, mm. as a player, would have travelled that amount of time and got used to hotel rooms yeah. and, and the life. But yeah, completely different. And I don't think I'm... I don't know if I'm still used to it yet. The thing you, you get sick of, as you guys would know more than most, is this hotel life. And that- I'd love to be able to stay in a hotel. <laughs> yeah, <all right>. <laughs> <laughs> Different experience for us in the freelance beat. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, and the, just the disconnection from, from home. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky in the sense that there is a wonderful group of women on the circuit, but the guys as well. It is, it is like a little bit of a family without sounding mm. too wankerish in, yeah. in some ways. But I, I think that was a big surprise for, for you and me, Adam, as well, is, is like how welcoming it is. There, there isn't any sense among broadcasters that who the fuck are you or yeah. you don't belong here, you know, for, for people like us who aren't players we, we don't run up against that resistance from other yeah. people in the profession yeah and and there is that welcome there is that sense that everybody needs to take care of each other because yeah. you're you're all on the road a lot even working in it. your own country you're yep. generally not at home yep. you're generally somewhere else um there, there is that duty of care almost to each other yeah and i think i hope it sort of comes across on air too because i think that's a really important thing with whether it's radio or television is that you do need you need a little bit of chemistry because i think people mm. can tell if there's some, you know, two people on air that don't really get on or things like that. And you don't want to be sort of going, what's going on there in the commentary box? Mm. You want to be actually yeah. engaged yeah. in the game that's, that's, yeah. that's going on. Um, and that's been the really nice thing, whether it's been 
Pakistan Super League, Caribbean Premier League, the Men's World Cup, you know, WBBL Kia Super League. Whichever one you go to, there's always just this wonderful mix of of people. But every sort of mix is is been absolutely lovely to work with and, and there's this point some time in the last three or four years where it's become this wild ride where i think maybe it, it wasn't necessarily one sport following another sport but just seeing women's sport happen on tv in prime time as a as a visible thing means that it is possible it is okay so suddenly the matildas are a massive deal suddenly yep. the afl women's yeah. um, rugby league's getting in on it. it it's happening in all directions and then that spills over to mean that you're also calling men's cricket and that's no longer remarkable because that is just how it should be because yeah. why would there be any difference yeah and look i would say probably at the moment i'm probably at 80 percent men's cricket and yep. have been for the last last couple of years kind of thing and I think for the whole women's sports space too, it's it's just the it's fantastic to now have the very open discussions about women's sport, which I think in the past it's almost like taboo to talk about some yeah. topics, you know. But people are now happy. Like I had a guy come up to me after a, I hosted a, a women in football event at um, Uni Blues a couple of years ago, and Beck Madden was our guest speaker and. Beck's been a, I think she's the number one ticket holder at Geelong Football Club and um, hosted the, the footy show here in Melbourne. Those are footy. So we had a chat and then after it, this guy came up to me and he would have been, I don't know, maybe 60. And he said, I am just loving the whole women in sports space. Love girls getting out there and women playing all sports. I'm like, oh, fantastic. And he said, but, and I'm like, oh, here we go. He said, I can't <laughs> come at women playing AFL football. And I'm, I'm like, okay, brace yourself here, Jones. I said, oh, why is that? And so all of a sudden, you, all these answers are going through your head. Yeah, and yeah. thinking, what's he going to come out with? And he said, because they could damage their reproductive organs. And I said, right. Um, so in my head, I, I'm thinking, which way am I going to go here? So I, I left the whole, it's our body, we can pretty much do. Yeah. And I also left the whole scientific side of things talking about how much force you actually need to damage women's internal. You basically need to be in a car traveling about yeah. 100 k's an hour and you know, also, testicles dropping. are external. And uh, that's what I went with. All right. <laughs> I said, look, I'm, I'm no doctor, but I would think that your reproductive organs are a little bit more exposed than mine. <laughs> and he just, it was like, it just, it just dawned on him. Yeah. He was just like, I never thought of that. Yeah. I'm like, well, maybe you should think about it a little bit more. Mm. And he went, I will. <laughs> and then he just walked off. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't, know. I don't know what he thinks, if he's changed his mind or not or yeah. whatever it is. But it was that confronting thing of, you know, we've been brought up to know that girls play sports that aren't physical, that, you know, Feminine don't get too sports. much of a sweat. I wanted to ask you about, about advocacy because, you know, you're, you're obviously a, a big champion of women's sport and, and women and girls getting involved in sport. Yep. It can be really hard to strike the right tone when talking yeah. about it because – if you're seen to be pushing or lobbying, then you get a lot of people who push back and yeah, say, "Oh, cool. now you're now you're um, you're an advocate or you're an you're yeah. an agitator or whatever it is. Yeah. Therefore, we can ignore you." Um, you've managed to strike a balance between that most of the time of, of being someone who people will listen to, but at the same time, you don't want to be someone who who backs down from what needs to be said because yeah. they might annoy dickheads. Yeah. Because you don't want to be pan- <laughs> yeah. you don't want to be couching things in terms of what will appeal to a dickhead. Yeah. So then. I don't know. How do yeah. you? You managed to do it, but I, how have you managed? To? I, I I don't know. It's, it's been a. It's probably been one of the trickiest ones, and it's, I keep coming back to phrases, finding your voice, and I, I know people find their own voice in a variety of different ways. Um, 
and I just encourage people to do it their own way first and foremost. And I think for me, it was interesting. I'd listened to a fantastic podcast, uh, Willosophy. Will Anderson yeah. was interviewing yep. Ka- Kathy Lett. We've had him on the show, actually. Oh, brilliant. Um, Kathy Lett, who's Australian author. Um, she wrote Puberty Blues. She's been living in England for now. For, does her own comedy shows. Um, and she was speaking on it and it's it's I think I'm probably a little bit more like Kathy Lett in the sense of um, you can try and use humor as much as you possibly can because you don't want to walk into a room where they go oh here comes the women in cricket chick and what she you know what she going to you know berate us about now and you know you don't because as soon as they're defensive you're, you're never going to get any cut through whatsoever so you try and sometimes use humor in that sense just to break it down and, and get in get a foot in the door but then you don't want to use too much humor because you and that's where I keep coming back to another comedian in Hannah Gadsby in her Nanette series. She said, you know, comedians build the tension in the room, then let it go with the, the punchline, the joke. But if you keep, if if I keep letting the joke go, people sometimes don't take you seriously. So you've got to find that balance between having a bit of fun to let them in, but at the same point in time, sometimes not making it funny and saying, actually, no, this is this is deadly serious. Um, and that's I think that's just an ongoing challenge with individuals with different groups you know sometimes I'll bring in someone who's a little bit more more forceful who I know can get a bit more cut through um the the beauty of it at the moment is that there's just a lot of guys out there you guys you know perfect example who who are our biggest advocates you just got to be brave enough at times just to stick to your guns and call it as you see it the one thing that I don't engage with which I've tossed up and back a little bit, but I'm probably not funny enough. At least Healy is, but it is on social media. So people have a crack and things like that. I just, I don't give them the oxygen. We've got bigger battles to fight on bigger stages. Yeah. Block early, block often. This, that's it. <laughs> Another thing, MJ, working with you in the last couple of weeks and having done so a couple of years ago as well, is that you take meticulous notes, you're ridiculously well prepared, and... I'm not saying that every male commentator. There are instances of, of blokes who who work on air who can trade off their former career and can kind of get away with um, not knowing as much. But you, you never take that risk, and I feel like that's a a feature of the other women we've worked with. I think of, we, we've re- reflected on that Germanos already, but Isha Guha, Ali Mitchell, uh, commentators of that ilk who you're always armed. Lisa Stalake is another one armed with so many notes and you've done so much work beforehand to make sure that you never give those sorts of critics the exposure that you don't know what you're talking about, especially when talking about men's cricket even. Yeah, well, one, I've got the world's worst memory, so I need to take notes. <laughs> it's, it's, it actually helps sort of sink in um, for me a little bit more. You don't use them all. That's another thing is that yep. I think to start with I was always like you've got to get everything out everything out but you don't have to have to do that and for me also it's I think about it like I grew up watching men's cricket but it was what I saw on Australian television here and because you're traveling the world so much I was only working it out today that in this 12 months because I was thinking about giving up the grog and you know why this year was so important and I think you know the players across the the tournaments that I'm working in in this 12-month period was up around 1,300. So that's male and female, domestic, international, probably across 12 different countries. Wow, so to be yeah. able to get your head, and that's just the, the current stuff. So you've right. still got to know countries, history of cricket and yeah. administrators and umpires and who's who in the zoo and where's this team come from. You're travelling around the world. You, you've got this incredible sort of uh, life as a commentator, deeply involved in, in the game. But 
that doesn't diminish your involvement at a local level either. You're a proud member of the Essendon Maribyrnong Cricket Club. Um, Essendon Maribyrnong Park, I should say, isn't it? EMP. Uh, are you still playing? I know a couple of years ago you were still getting around playing in the uh, in the lower grades. Do you still turn out and play the occasional game? Sadly not. I would. Um, if the if they were short, everyone would sort of slot up a grade um, mm. and I'd go down to the thirds and the thirds were a wonderful mix of sort of the oldies um, and the youngies. So it was the bookends of ages kind of thing. You'd have yeah. these 13-year-old girls running around and then the 50 pluses who are just you know the stalwarts of the club and absolutely divine so I'd, I'd jump on so you'd at least have seven or eight on the park and then I'd find myself doing you know deep deep square to deep square the most amount of distance needed to be covered was was me <laughs> running around madly you know backing up and doing all those sorts of things and I, and completely loved it because it was club cricket and I, I love club cricket because it's it's the people that you know so well yeah. like I, I rocked up to the Australian team when I first got picked and I think I had to meet a couple of players that I hadn't really met before right. um, mm. and then you get to Australian you you train with the Australian squad and you, you go off to a tournament but it's not you're not living with them over an entire season and that's probably one of the big changes I guess coming forward now for the professionals in the game for the women unfortunately now with the, um, the schedule that is the Australian summer here it, most games are Weekends, but I am off to the uh, the Christmas party on Saturday night. So <laughs> I'm sure you are. Look out. And I mean, even just the way I saw an announcement from Cricket Australia today, which I'm sure you would have had your hands all over about um, delivering kit to 100 clubs, 100 clubs where they were going to invest in women's, uh, you know, bats and uh, yeah. protective equipment and so forth. Um, like that's a, you know, um, it's where your, I guess your 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 current. Uh, responsibilities in your former life and, and your determination to give back to local level all intersect really nicely. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And uh, that's a perfect start. I mean, equipment is, I mean, it's a, an expensive sport and it's a it's a very skillful sport too. So it's not an, e- an easy sport for young girls to come into, particularly if they haven't done what I did, you know, played a lot of backyard cricket and the like. So yeah, you need to be able to support clubs as much as possible. It's But the support can come in so many different ways. So yes, the is important but it's it's that conversation with clubs to let them know how to include girls and women into their club there's the, the saying diversity is being asked to the event but inclusion is being asked to dance so it's all well and good to have a diverse club but you've really got to you know do some serious heavy lifting in terms of understanding why they're there and girls play sport for different reasons than boys so it's not about the win loss as much it is more you know the, the social side of things so your club needs to be pretty proactive once they've got the equipment and the space and all these sorts of things to to go away from what they've always done for boys and just overlay it onto the girls program so they've got to got to be pretty pretty smart in that space to, to shift things up my last question for you mel you've got this opportunity you're on the board mm-hmm. what do you want to do with it what do you hope to achieve um, over the you know the short term and the medium term that you might be involved? Yeah, it was interesting. I was <laughs> thinking about this myself, um, and it was almost like getting into the media because when you're in it and you're thinking, it's hard to actually think about the scope that you do have and how much power is probably the wrong word, but you do have a bit of clout now to hmm. actually ask the questions well, to, to shape the way that things go. You yeah, can, you can have that influence. Yeah, and I'd, I, straight away I said to them, I said, I'm not here to be the women's women's cricketer on, on the board and only look at women's issues. But it is obviously going to be something I'm very passionate about. I think for me is I, I just I want cricket to remain with cricket at the heart of each decision, not 
a financial return or and we've got an exceptionally astute board who <laughs> my first board meeting I was blown away by the people on it. I think they're they're fantastic and they've got the clout and nuances and nous to to make some serious changes at that sort of very commercial and strategic level. I think for me is just just keep asking the questions is how does it affect our game how does it affect how we want to see cricket being played and run here in Australia and and globally we want to remember that it's big picture stuff with you know Australia's a big nation Uh, we can affect countries like PNG and um, Bangladesh women coming through Um, we want to keep a focus on how we can help develop the game outside our our country, but also we want to we want to make sure that you know young kids coming into a club or any age really for that matter, it's a nice enjoyable experience. So, so for me, it's it's it, I think the first year is just going to be asking a lot of questions to find out what kind of answers I'm getting back, so that I can get a sense of where where things are potentially going. But there's so many, it's it's exciting in the sense of there's so many opportunities. Um, my mum's very big into the environment. She works with Landcare and the Box Iron Bar Forest and all these sorts of things. For me to go to the country regions and see country grounds with, with no grass and, and struggling, you know, that's it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Because you know how important cricket is to local communities, particularly in the country. So, you know, we sh- we've got to be looking at climate change policies and how we can protect our grounds and, and ensure that, that that's a hub for people to, still to go to. So, yeah, there's, there's lots. That might be a, a nice place to put a full stop on the conversation, uh, but it certainly might be putting a full stop on the contribution uh, you're making, Mel Jones. It's been a mighty one. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for the amount of support you've given Jeff and I over the last handful of years in our journey in cricket, and thanks for being part of the final word. Well, I'm going to take that it took five years for me to get on as as a good thing. It's harder to get onto our show than it is to get onto the board. There we go. Perfect. Had an absolute <laughs> ball, guys. Thank you. <laughs> uh, g'day, this is Will Anderson, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and uh, what a pleasure it was to finish the year off just about until we get to our New Year's Eve episode with Melanie Jones. Yeah, I, I, look, you said it off the top, Jeff, but we spoke to Harsha last year at Christmas and people love the, the long form format and hopefully you've got plenty out of that. As I sort of said in the interview, I feel like I met Mel as a kid and I feel like I've, we've got to know her really well over the last five years that we've been on this adventure. She's been a big part of it. It is true to say she is a genuine friend of the show and we've wanted to get her on for a long time. It's the perfect timing, uh, really, in that this was the year when she became... Uh, a member of the Order of Australia, a Cricket Australia board director. Of course, her commentary career, which she detailed in that interview. Uh, she's done so much after her playing career, which was, of course, decorated in its own right with a couple of Ashes wins and a, a couple of World Cup winners' medals too. So um, what a massive contribution she's been making to cricket over such a long period of time and, and really a trailblazer in what she's been doing behind the mic in, in normalising the idea for lots of girls, I, I suspect, growing up and boys as well, but girls especially, that you can and have a, a career in cricket which which uh, which can be varied it doesn't need to necessarily be as a player it can be as a, a journalist or a broadcaster or someone talking about the game with authority so um, thanks again to Mel for, for you know giving her giving us her time which it's fair to say Jeff is under a lot of demand and that's a great thing that we had to try to find a, a spot in her diary harder to do than you might think and also one of those fairly rare people in cricket who I could safely say is respected by everybody um, you know most most people have have their fans and their um, people who are not so much but mm. uh, Mel is 
broadly liked and respected around that cricket world. So thanks to her for making time on the show. Um, a few thanks going out for Christmas, obviously, to Bad Producer, our production company, DC and Jay and Astrid, who have done a power of work for us throughout this year. Um, to everybody who's listened in and everyone who's supported the show on Patreon, everyone who's supported the show by leaving reviews and ratings or talking us up on social media or um, dropping us an email and being in contact, everyone who's come along to the live shows. It's been a, an absolutely gorgeous year for the show. We've had um, a lot of fun. I suppose we'll do more of this retrospective on the New Year's Eve show, but we might as well do it now because it's Christmas, Adam. Yeah, absolutely. Future Talent and Wisdom Cricket Monthly who are working with us at the moment. There's a slew of others, uh, especially Kookaburra, who've been there throughout the course of the year. Um, who've, who've given us so much in terms of, um, you know, their their brand, I suppose, and sharing what they do with us, but also um, talking to our audience who've responded in kind. So that's been a great experience, kind of doing that for the first time in 2019. Merry Christmas to all, and to all, a good night. Sorry if I ran out to empty road This so you know what I meant here I had to go about it Write it out and find it